Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Once again, we are with you to talk about some science to you, at you, and with you, I believe. Manisha, what are you going to talk about at people today? At people. Um, today, I want to talk about a recent article that was published in Mammalian Review, Mammal Review, um, about some biases in research and what kind of species attract more funding and more research. Oh, okay. Hmm. So Mammal Review, is that where they re- people review mammals and they say, this one... <laughs> I like this. This um, this, this, this mammal is better than these yeah. other mammals. Yeah. They get like five star ratings and things yeah. like that. Yep. Great, great. Yep. I can five, see why five, five breasts out of five. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Mm. I can see why there'd be biases mm. there. Uh, Stu, five what breasts did... are better than less breasts. Mm. He, Stu brought up the breasts, breasts concept. <laughs> so I was, the, I was you know, that's that's the, the, that's, mammal the, that's the defining factor of mammals. It so, is. You know. It is. I was trying to pretend you weren't talking about that, but anyway, Stu, what do you got for us? Um, I'm actually going to be talking to Ernie Steiner from the uh, Western Australian Department of Agriculture about how they are combating a fruit fly problem by breeding more fruit flies. What? Mm. Well, as I say, time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. Oh, God. And I am going to be looking at whether insects uh, have consciousness the question of what is consciousness? Do insects have it? There's been a recent Ooh. paper published looking at the the various the very nature of what it is to be conscious and how it might have evolved as well, which is an interesting. That makes thing. me feel scared now. If because then if I squish a bug, I'm going to feel really really sad. Not as sad as the bug, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Well. <laughs> All right, on with the show. So an article was recently published in Mammal Review where the authors Patricia Fleming from Murdoch Uni and Philip Bateman from Curtin Uni uh, reviewed about 14,000 papers on Australian mammals. And they aimed to assess the biases in Australian mammalian research. Australia is a very interesting country. It's a very large island uh, with a long history of isolation, which has resulted in a large number of endemic species. So these are species that basically only occur here. The reverse to this is that since we have so many endemic species, losing populations can be highly detrimental. In the last 200 years, 10% of the endemic species have gone extinct and 21% of them are considered threatened. So in their paper, Fleming and Bateman aimed to evaluate research biases in the current literature and argued that the way that we record and report research outcomes is really important to overall conservation action. Conservation actions go towards things that we think are more significant conservation problems. But if we don't know about it or don't know what to do, fewer actions are taken. And even some of the actions that are taken, they're not as effective as we expected them to be. So this is, um, I mean, obviously when it comes to conservation, then the public is going to be more interested in your fuzzy and your charismatic fluffy animals. animals. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it's, um, you're saying it actually extends to the, the research as well. It does. There's this 
oh, it's this massive, I'm having this massive internal debate with this whole thing. And it just comes right back to what's being studied and what's getting funding for studying or for being studied. And then if that funding is driven by public awareness and public perceptions mm-hmm. of what is important and what's earning money and where people want to put it. So it's this massive cycle. So is the, is the funding sort of just a popularity contest, basically? Yeah, yeah. and it, it's really interesting to think about it. In their paper, uh, what Fleming and Bateman did was categorize 331 Australian mammals, mm-hmm. and they put them into three categories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So for them, the good, or the way that they categorize the good, are the monotremes and the marsupials. So our platypus, echidnas, kangaroos, wallabies, the animals that you would kind of associate them with Australian mammals. That's They're on nice. coins. Yeah, yeah exactly. So the, these the are cute, fluffy ones. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so these species make up nearly half of the number of species in the study but they represent 77% of the total literature. Okay. So they're getting a clear bias. There's a lot of studies on these good species. The bad species are introduced species. These are species like fox or rabbits, um, feral cats, and they're like the highly political species. Mm-hmm. In many cases, they have detrimental social effects, um, economic effects, ecological impacts, and they all, these species draw a lot of money for management initiatives or impact studies to kind of see what they're going to be doing to our environment or our economies and how we can help prevent any loss. Well, that sounds important. It, it does sound important. They only represent 6% of, our, of the Australian mammal species, yeah. and they account for 12% of the publications. Okay. So they are studied well above what their percentage in the whole species realm as well. When we come back down to the, the ugly species, these are our native eutherian species like bats and rodents, my beloved little bats. They get put in these ugly categories. It's unfair. But they're quite cute. Yeah, they are that, quite that cute. Unfair. They, they're cute and fluffy. Exactly. So, yes, go bats. And rodents. Rodents can be cute too. Rodents are cute too. Now, it is, I guess it's a, people, a lot of people don't realize that we do have native rodents exactly. in Australia. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the whole thing. Like, it's they're cryptic and they're bats like a lot of the nocturnal bats you probably wouldn't have even seen them before yeah. and things like that so it's it's a bit you're not really even sure that you even have them but despite accounting for 45% of the total mammal species considered bats and rodents are the least studied and as we said before there's so little known about these species but it comes down to even their basic biology we don't know things like their diet or their habitat requirements or mm-hmm. their range or their breeding range and things like that and Without all of this information, it's actually putting this group of species, the ugly species, at the highest risk of extinction. Mm. So rodents and bats make up 44% of the mammal species, but they're only 11% of the total number of publications in this review. And presumably being small, there's probably a lot more of them than there are of the larger animals. Is that, would that be... You know, accurate to assume that. I think it it come it, there's a there's a ground for that assumption, but we really don't know anything about. Because no that. one's done any study. Exactly, so we don't actually know. There's grounds for that assumption, but yeah, yeah. It, it's fair. It's but. just uh, you know, it's just it, it, as an ecological niche, thing, yeah. it's like you know, it, it, the, these tiny little animals are probably doing a lot of work in the environment and keeping the ecology exactly. ticking over, exactly. and no one's actually looking at them because nobody really cares what they do, and they or, work at night. And they work at night. Some yeah. of them do. Some shift of them workers. don't. Yeah. Oh, poor little shift workers. <laughs> Anyways, the reason I found all of this interesting is because of how the research is related to the conservation actions. From this study, it's apparent that the 
a lot of research is focused on larger species with a wide range, the things that we see every day, the things that we can identify. And these species arguably are easier to study, but they may also be easier to sell because the studies on these recognizable, identifiable species, species like koalas and fox, species Mm -hmm. that are fuzzy, they attract more funding than unknown and cryptic animals. If you don't know about it, how are you meant to know that it's important and how to fund it? And since there's less ecological studies on these little cryptic animals, they're not often included in conservation actions and in, in plans and policies, so they get left out, again, putting them at a higher risk of going extinct. And the authors of this paper, Fleming and Bateman, they actually pointed out a really interesting bias. They reviewed studies from scientific journals, and they looked at the impact of these papers on conservation action. And to publish in high-impact journals, studies need to be appealing and broad-scaled for the vast readership of the journal. So very specific studies on, say, the breeding range of a small rodent may not make it into these high-impact journals, again reducing what the authors note as Mm -hmm. the research impact. So it's not just enough to do the research, but the information needs to be broadcasted in a way that it makes... It makes its way into policy and planning for the for the research to have some sort of a conservation impact. And I don't mean to dismiss any of the smaller journals or say that decision makers only look at these high-impact journals when they're conducting their research for their issue, but rather I'm looking at this from a researcher perspective. If my goal as a researcher is to publish papers in strong, high-ranking journals, maybe I'm choosing to study species or issues that will get me into those journals. So maybe together with the easier bid for funding, it's just this massive cycle. And it's kind of this little dilemma that I'm facing right now. I don't, like, how do we break this continuous loop? And what are the driving forces behind the research? Well, you're researching bats, so you're doing the the ugly ones, uh, you know. But... Like, how did I get into that? Because, like, at the end of the day, if I want to be publishing something, there has to be something, I don't know, catchy about it. I'm not studying the breeding biology of bats. I'm not studying the roosting It's one of those things in in research, though, that it's easy to research something someone's already started doing research on. Yeah. So you can't sort of... It's it's very difficult to just start doing research on something that no one's done any work on because there's no background... To, yeah, to start from. Yeah, and you yeah. can't say, well, look, this this so-and-so came up with such great ideas and such great thoughts, mm. so maybe we can expand on it. You yeah. kind of have to be so-and-so, yeah. and it makes it so hard. And it's just, uh, it's like, what are you studying? Are you studying to get things published, or are you studying out of interest, or are you studying because there's adverse impacts involved and there's e- like economic and ecological impacts involved, or is there anything wrong with these motives? Are you allowed to be studying it with these kind of ideas? It's just... Uh, it's just really odd and I'm it's not messy, yeah. it's all messy and then I kind of think about it because in the there's that whole ideal versus realistic ideally you go out there and you have pockets full of cash and you study all day and you just play and you're really passionate but then realistically there's limits and there's a line there's a line to draw and uh, it's just I don't know I've, I've ever since I've been reading this or I've kind of had this internal struggle for a while but reading this and seeing a paper pu- being published on something that has been kind of rolling around in my mind for some time. It's so hard. I don't really know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know what the main message I'm trying to send here is, but I just hope that, like, I don't know, that we figure it out sometime or I figure it out. I don't know. As long as we're getting um, information we need to do the, I guess, the conservation goals that we have, and this is, I guess this comes down to... But how do you determine if we are getting that information? How are you... And, like, you can argue that by protecting one of the species or protecting the environment of a species may like have a domino effect and you're protecting other species within that environment as well. 
So I guess, I guess, I guess hopefully from a conservation perspective is that you're conserving the entire ecosystem yeah. rather than just going, oh, we'll just look after this one species. It's like, well. But then, so on, from a conservation perspective, that makes sense. But then from a policy or government side of things, like you can't just say, let's just protect everything. They're, you know, if you're putting in a new road or if you're putting in a new development and they notice that there's a endangered species there, mm-hmm. there's different plans and actions taking place. But how about if you don't even know that that species is endangered? And you ha- yeah, because you don't, you don't know anything you about it. You don't know it. anything <laughs> about it that you can't. And, you know, we have so many of our um, Australian endemic species that are listed, like um, under IUCN, they're, they are uh, data deficient. And we don't, we actually don't know how to list them and what category to put them under because we don't know anything about them. So what do we do? Hmm. It's just, ah, uh, this is my life right now. I'm just so confused. <laughs> I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. To be or not to be, that is my question for you. God. As in, as what in is, a bumblebee? As, yeah, as in, to be a bee. What is it to be a bee? What is it to be a bee? This is a, this is the question. There is a Do, thing. Does a, be bee a bee know it's a bee? Well, this is what we're asking. Um, is a bee conscious? Are insects conscious? This is following a paper that was published recently by two researchers from Macquarie University. Yes, Andrew Barron and Colin Klein. They published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And, yeah, and they make the case that insects do have a form of consciousness. Now, this is a tricky question, though, because I guess the question then you think is, well, what is consciousness? Consciousness, yeah. And it is something that people have struggled with, obviously, for thousands of years and tried to come up with some sort of answer to it. And everyone seems to have an opinion. I, I am a physicist, obviously, and physicists like to think they know everything, and a lot of physicists think they have the answer to consciousness. I don't think that's really true. <laughs> uh, you know, they're trying to go with the whole thing that it's some sort of quantum phenomenon or that it's related to complex systems which physicists are good at studying and this kind of rubbish. I don't know. I don't think, I think, you know, let's, let's keep it in biology for the moment. I'm sure I'm sure mathematicians would argue that they've got all the answers probably beyond what the physicists do. <laughs> they they probably do that as they well. Probably have different yeah. questions. And then yeah. epistemologists probably think that they've got all the answers beyond yeah. everyone else. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, look, you know, there and there's various different ways to study it. One thing that I've seen in the past is the interesting question of when you're looking say at, at humans is you know, when, say, someone is in a coma, you mm. know, what happens in the switching on and off of consciousness? And, you know, that's kind of another way to think about consciousness as being this, this state of, of the way that the, the body or the brain performs, and they can be switched on and off. So what's happening, what's changing when, when someone is conscious versus unconscious? So there's those sort of questions as well. And there are obviously different sort of, I suppose you could say different hierarchies of consciousness. So there is kind of the consciousness that, uh, that humans sometimes have, which is the ability to reflect on your own mm-hmm. consciousness. So the fact we can say we are conscious is kind of another kind of meta sort of level of being aware of our awareness. Well, and also, I mean, there's the theory of mind as well, where I can imagine what you're thinking like. You can, you can actually think of what someone else's consciousness is thinking, which is another step above just thinking about your own consciousness. You can sort of project sort of empathy kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the question when you then start to ask, do, do any animals have this ability? Now, this level of self-awareness is something that, you know, some animals have been shown to, to have some sort of self-awareness. I think I think a couple of years ago where they showed monkeys looking in mirrors and checking themselves out in mirrors. And I think various other animals have been shown to be aware of themselves in a mirror and understanding 
that they that's a invent. reflection of themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that humans seem to develop around two years of age, I think, is roughly that ability. And then there's, you know, sort of many animals do seem to have kind of awareness of other individuals and that they're different. I know that dogs, you know, seem to have a fairly good social awareness of different individuals and how they fit in to the situation. But then you can carry that even further. And this is where we get to this question about insects. So do, does, say, something as simple as an insect have a consciousness? I mean, obviously, they can respond to stimuli. You know, you can chase a fly around a room. They can seem to be able to feel pain. They have receptors for pain. They can um, avoid painful stimuli. Does this actually mean that they have consciousness? Because, you know, for instance, a robot can be made to do much the same things. You know, a vacuum cleaner robot can navigate around a room. It gets stuck. It seems distressed. But no one would ever suggest that your, your robot vacuum cleaner is has conscious. Has feelings. Right? Yeah, has feelings. has consciousness. But there's insects with social orders and social systems. So wouldn't that imply that there's some sort of... Well, even then, you don't know how much that is kind of a consciousness thing or... Or it's, it's like, an instinctive inbuilt... Yeah. Behavior. Well, but if I there's mean, that inbuilt behavior, wouldn't that just imply that there's a consciousness? Well, the question is then you look at things like um, bacteria and plants, which um, can also respond to stimuli and can also have fairly complex arrangements. Do they have sort of consciousness in that sense? So what these researchers have decided to look at is instead of this question of what is it like to be a bee? And this is following, I think, there was a bloke who wrote about what's it like to be a bat, which is kind of <laughs> up your alley, Manisha. But these are asking what it's like to be an insect. And there's something called subjective experience. So do these animals kind of have an experience of the world that's unique to them? That is the you know, way they experience the world. And so what they're looking at here is... Well, for us, it's something that happens in the, the midbrain, which is part of the brain that is kind of just above the brainstem. It's like right in the middle bit. It's a, little, a very small part, and it's kind of very old evolutionarily part of the brain. So it's you know, hidden beneath all the big folds of the, the cortex and this kind of thing. And it is essentially where all the sensory information is, comes through together. That It's where we build a picture of the world effectively that then is processed by the rest of the brain. So it's this kind of process... Yeah, of creating what they call a neural model of the world. And this is where they talk about experiencing the world. So having some sort of model of all the information coming together, making this model of the world that you then use to understand what's going on. And so they're arguing that this is something that they, well, they say they found this sort of similar kind of structure. It's not exactly the same in um, insects. Insects have much, much smaller brains, as you can imagine. But this is what they use, say, like bees, again, use to navigate around the world. They can understand to a certain level of you know where they are, where they're going. I need to go this way to find um, the pollen and this yep. kind of stuff. They have kind of that, that sort of awareness of the world. And in that sense, they do have some sort of subjective experience because they have this awareness of the world. Don't they and they can also communicate to yeah. each other. Don't they also send yeah. out a scout yeah. and then they have that? Like a dance yeah, they come back thing? and do a little yeah. dance and I show guess, each other where the where I guess the here we're focusing is. on Jeez, we're focusing on the internal state of mind of yep. of the insects, not how they communicate to each other, hmm. but yeah, oh, what what do they yeah within themselves? What are they? What is their own experience of the world? Um, and that part of the communicating oh. is part of it because it's not so much the communicating, the telling of it, but also I guess the receiving of that message and saying, okay, so they've told me that the flower is over there. When they go out there, putting that information together, what you've been told by the other bee, with what you're seeing out in the world, yep. and you're building this model of what's going on. Wow. And it's like it's a really, it is a really fascinating thing. And they suggest that this perhaps arose in animals around the Cambrian era, which is about 540 million years ago, which is kind of shortly before insects emerged. And they're suggesting that it is to do with this whole notion of navigating the world effectively and that if you've got certain certain animals like parasitic worms which no longer need to move they just kind of latch onto something and stay there how they have lost these kind of neural structures they don't have this kind of brain that has this kind of able to collate all this information in this sense 
So, look, it is a really, it is a really fascinating concept. It also does actually hold out the um, this possibility there because their insect brains are, are fairly small that we might be able to build essentially a model and a, you know robots that have oh, yeah. a model of an insect brain and be able to build them over robots that have primitive consciousness in this sense. But yeah, look, it is it is a it is a fascinating thing. I mean. Again, it's all about what it is like to be a bee. We can never actually experience what it is like to be a bee or a bat or any other thing, or even, another as person. you were saying, another person. Mm. Yet uh, we can look and see whether they have what it takes, I suppose, in their brains to have some sort of feeling, even if we can't imagine it ourselves. We can at least figure out whether they, they have it or not. Hmm. So I've got Ernie Steiner on the line, who is from the Department of Agriculture and Food in Western Australia, and Ernie's doing some work with fruit flies. But from the sound of things, Ernie, you're you're breeding more fruit flies and you're going to let them go. That's right, Stu. We have been rearing um, sterile Mediterranean fruit fly for many years now, and it's originally an imported strain from Vienna, but the very same species of Mediterranean fruit fly that uh, is a problem here and has been a problem in Western Australia for over 100 years. What is the actual problem with the fruit fly? What do they actually do that causes a problem for, for fruit growers, I guess? Oh, they damage hundreds of uh, different uh, fruits and vegetables and um, make the produce unacceptable for marketing and uh, particularly affects uh, interstate and overseas markets. So does it spoil the fruit? I mean, does the fruit go off quicker and it's not just, it's not just a cosmetic thing? No, that's right. Basically what happens is the uh, female fruit fly after mating will uh, lay several eggs into a host plant and then uh, those eggs will hatch out into um, larvae or maggots and those maggots will go through three stages and they get quite large and uh, damage fruit, cause it to go rotten and then they eventually leave the fruit and go into a ground phase, and then they come out as the adult fly and start all over again. So the, the fruit fly have been in Western Australia for 100 years, you said? Yes, and, yes. Since, and, actually, since 1895 in the metro area here in Perth. OK, so is it confined to the metro area, or is it all over Western Australia? No, it's pretty much all over. We have area freedom up in the Ord River in Kununurra, yep. um, but uh, from Broome all the way around to Esperance and uh, inland towns. We've picked up fruit fly in Kalgoorlie and Norseman, and so they're really well established. But the biggest concentration is mainly in the uh, southwest corner of the state, but we also have a uh, sizable populations in Geraldton and also Carnarvon. Okay, so huge problem for people who try to grow fruit for a living. What, what exactly are you doing to try and combat the, the problem? Well, we're focused on Carnarvon at the moment, um, a very valuable horticultural area in the state. That's about an $80 million a year industry. And um, we've got a three-year pilot program funded through the Royalties for Regions scheme. And also we have funding from Horticulture Innovation Australia and the department also. And we've embarked on this eradication program to eradicate fruit fly from the Carnarvon area. So you're trying to get rid of them all together. Is, is that a, an achievable goal, do you think? Yeah, we certainly think it's achievable. We um, have very good technologies available now. We, it had been tried 
back in the late 70s, early 80s, eradication, and in fact was achieved, but um, our techniques are, are much better now. We, we release only male flies, where in the past they released sterile males and females. So we now have the technology to release only males, which makes it a far more effective system in that you don't have sterile male flies mating with the sterile female flies that you've also reared and released. So that's no longer the case. And uh, so our sterile males will find their wild female uh, mates and the resultant mating um, produces uh, infertile eggs. So the population just crashes very rapidly. So, so how do you, you breed up the males and then how, how do you ensure that they're sterile before you release them into the, into the wild? Well, just before they're emerged as an adult, they, they have this um, a pupil stage, it's called. They're in a little casing, little hard casing. Yep. And, and two days before they're due to come out of that casing, uh, we irradiate them. So we're using X-ray irradiation to sterilise. Okay, so then, and then they go out into the, I guess, into the orchard or wherever, wherever you release them, and they, what do they do? They out-compete the, yeah, the natural right, population. Because, um, yeah, that's, that's right, Stu, just because of the numbers that we release. So we, we package up those sterile uh, pupa, and then we ship them up to Carnarvon, and they're held in a facility for about a week to mature, emerge and mature, and uh, then we chill them down and put them into a, uh, a machine that actually blows the flies out from the back of a vehicle as we travel around so uh, quite a sophisticated machine it works on gps and we put maps into it and we can input uh, the number of flies per linear kilometer that we want to release into the target area so those flies will then go and find their um, female mates and but we certainly flood the area with a high number of flies so we're looking at about a hundred of our flies to one wild female fly so the base rate is around about 100,000 sterile male flies per square kilometre. That's a lot of flies. How many um, fruit flies do you breed? We can rear up to about 8 million per week here in our factory, but for Carnarvon, um, we will reach levels of about 5 million per week. Okay. And um, have you got any results of, of the effects that you've, uh, that you've achieved so far? Um, we have, through our work with the uh, South Australian government, so South Australia has periodic outbreaks of Mediterranean fruit fly, and we have supplied flies to South Australia for eradication over about 15 years now, and they, they have actually uh, got rid of eight outbreaks using this method. Right, so they're back, back down to zero in, uh, in South Australia? Yes, that's right. Well, currently they have another outbreak, so we are once again supplying to them for that purpose and um, actually shipments um, will start this week. So they've embarked on a, um, a huge um, hygiene program to you know, clear fruits and, and baiting and uh, now they're going to uh, finish off the process by using sterile fruit fly. Okay, well it sounds like it's a, uh, a pretty involved process but um, I, I wish you all the best in getting rid of them in Carnarvon and uh, yeah, hopefully... Thanks. Hopefully you'll be able to roll that out across the rest of the state as well. Absolutely, yeah. We, we, you know, it's a very good technique and um, certainly improves the uh, prospects for market access. All right, well, thanks for joining us, uh, Ernie, and um, all the best with the, uh, with the program.
Okay, thanks, Stu. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in, in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.